that, yeah, I made a mistake, but I could really make this worse. If I made a mistake and all of a sudden I unhooked myself and I start floating off into space and they got to come get me, now I've made it a lot worse because I was nervous of not thinking because I made a mistake. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Today we're talking with astronaut Mike Massimino. You should listen to this episode if you wanna learn why assembling a team around you is crucial for success, why it's important to take small deliberate steps in the right direction for the sake of your own happiness and your legacy, how to stay focused on the task at hand in the face of disaster by thinking like an astronaut, and learn why even astronauts have imposter syndrome. We're glad to have you with us here today at AOC, so enjoy this one with Michael Massimino. And by the way, if you're new to the show, we'd love to send you some top episodes and the AOC Toolbox, where we discuss things like reading body language and nonverbal communication, negotiation techniques, networking, mentorship, influence, persuasion tactics, and everything else we teach here at The Art of Charm. In the US, just text CHARMED to 33444, that's C-H-A-R-M-E-D to 33444. Everywhere else, go to theartofcharm.com. Also at theartofcharm.com slash podcast, you can find the full show notes for this and all previous episodes of the show. All right, here's Mike Massimino. First of all, you've spent a lot of time in space, 571 hours and 47 minutes, and that includes 30 hours and four minutes of spacewalking. At some point, do you wake up in the morning and go, wait a minute, where am I, and realize I'm in space. I'm still in space right now, this is real. You mean when you're in space or after? Yeah, of course. I'm sure you wake up at home sometimes and think, oh good, I'm not on the Hubble, I can go get a cheeseburger, right? But while you're in space, do you just never forget that you're actually all the way up there because of the whole setup and the weightlessness and you know having a Velcro pillow strapped to your head, et cetera? Um, no, I mean, it's just like if you wake up in a hotel room where you're not used to, you know, you wake up expecting to see your home, your regular bedroom, and then you wake up and you realize that, uh, especially like that first night, you know, you realize that, whoa, where am I? You know, it's kind of this eerie feeling you know, that, that, you know, where am I? Uh, just like you get when you're waking up in a strange room or in a hotel room or if you're sleeping on an airplane and wake up and you have a deep sleep and you have to remember where you are. So it was like that the first couple times waking up, I guess, the first day, first night or so. But then after a while, you know what, you know, that you, you're there and you wake up, it looks familiar. And then you come home and you wake up at home and it looks unfamiliar. Like, well, you're ready to float out of bed and that won't work. You get in both directions, I guess. When I wake up in the morning, generally, the first thing I notice is, okay, you know, I probably got a cat on my head or something like that, or, you know, it's a little warm in the room. When you're in space, it seems like there would be a completely different set of considerations. I mean, you're not just floating around up there. Obviously, you're strapped to something and whatnot, but when you wake up, what's kind of the first thing that you notice when you're in space? Like, is it the weightlessness? Is it the temperature? What is it? No, I think it's when you first wake up, like, wow, that was a quick night. I need more rest, uh, you know, just like a regular night, sort of like, oh, it's time to get up already. But then you're like, okay, this is going to be a fun day or an interesting day. For me on the space shuttle, it was more like a slumber party. So you have, you know, your crewmates are around you in their sleeping bags or you know, you're kind of in the same room. So you wake up and you see everybody else and you see who's up and who's not. And you, you know, you kind of go through your routine of getting out of your sleeping bag and rolling it up. Routine kind of becomes pretty important, I guess, because you have to get your stuff out of the way. On the shuttle, we have our own little crew cabin, your own little personal crew quarters to sleep in. On the space station, they do. They have their own little like personal area there that they can sleep in. They can close the door. But in, in the space shuttle, it was more like a big slumber party. So how close are you to the next guy or gal aside right next to you? I mean, do you have any personal space whatsoever? Oh, no, yeah, you, you have some personal space, but, you know, they're kind of like rolling around, you know, kind of around the wall or when someone's on the ceiling, I was on the ceiling at times. And they're just kind of scattered around the cabin. So, you know, you, you're not knocking into each other or you know, necessarily banging into each other, but you're fairly close. But you wake up and you see everybody, you see who's in your sleeping bag, so who's out, and who's in the bathroom and that kind of thing. And you just uh, float out and uh, start your day. Usually, you know, take off your sleep mask and put that away by the little kit sort of a little bag of stuff that I had, you know, my sleep kit, you know, with, with earplugs and sleep mask and whatever else I needed for the night. A little hat I would wear if I was cold and socks, you know, and keep my feet warm. So you've got your sleep kit. You're, are you basically then carabinered kind of into the wall of the shuttle? Because otherwise I feel like you could wake up and you just have your head, you know, right in someone else's personal space or you, you end up floating over to the bathroom or something in the middle of the night or, or banging your head on something. Your bedroll sleeping bag has um, has hooks, various little hooks 
not carabiners, but like easy, quick release hooks. And there's different things you can hook it to on the space shuttle. There's little things that you can that will receive the hook. And so you kind of hook the sleeping bag to the ceiling or hook the sleeping bag to the wall. And then you float inside of it so that you're floating as you're inside the sleeping bag. You are floating. I mean, you're kind of floating with the bag, but you don't float away. You'll stay attached to the wall, but you're still nonetheless floating, hovering kind of over the wall or the ceiling or wherever it is that you are. So you're not going to float away and bang your head and wake up your friends. You're going to stay in that one area, but you just float in that one area because your sleeping bag is secured. Got it. I mean, of course, when we're little, we learn about astronaut ice cream, and that's pretty much it. And then, of course, one kid says, how do they go to the bathroom? And that's kind of the end of the space lesson, at least in the 80s. So I'm still not even sure how that works. I mean, I think the one thing that I have in common with astronauts is occasionally during a really long show, I too need to pee into a bottle. But uh, I think you probably have a little bit more of an excuse. Yeah, that's why we don't use the video, in case you're wondering. So the first time you signed up for the astronaut program, essentially, and I know it's not as simple as that. I mean, in the book, you go over just repeated defeats and setbacks from your eyesight to your PhD thesis and things like that. I mean, there's no set path to just becoming an astronaut. Contrary to what every little kid sub 10 years old thinks when they say they want to be a spaceman or an astronaut, there's no application process. You don't upload your resume someplace and then go to school for this and then end up repairing the Hubble. It's more of a convoluted process. Tell us, though, what was the thought process going into this? I mean, what makes somebody want to be an astronaut and then actually freaking do it? I mean, there is a, there's an application. You don't sign up. You said you apply, and there is an application right. that you can fill out. Now it's online. I had to use a typewriter for mine. But say after you've been to school and so on, it's, there's no straight path. It's absolutely right. It's, you follow something that you're interested in and study what you're interested in in school do a career, whatever. It seems to me that things just kind of open up and happen and you take opportunities. But the thing you can do is you can keep applying. And so that's what I did. But I think it's important. And I had to learn that you're not guaranteed you're ever going to get in. And there's no one set path. And the path that's good for someone else is not going to be good for you. And the path that's good for you is not going to work for somebody else. There are some jobs that are kind of like, you know, there is sort of like a pattern to it. Some of the Test pilots, for example, that was more of a traditional path. Like become a, a high-performance aircraft pilot in the military, and you go to test pilot school, then you have that credential at that point that you can be considered to be an astronaut. You know, you've done those things to be a test pilot astronaut or a pilot astronaut. But even that doesn't have a straight path. There's different backgrounds for each one of those pilots, too. But particularly when you get into the civilian ranks and some of the other military occupations other than pilot, it's kind of a, whatever works for you. There's no set path to doing that but as far as what makes someone want to do it i you know for me it was the little boy dream of uh, wanting to walk in space wanting to walk on the moon like neil armstrong did when i was six years old i saw those guys walk on the moon and that got me interested i thought this was a great thing they were doing and the coolest thing that anybody could do and these guys were super rock stars you know they were it they were the coolest guys on the planet and i wanted to be like them but i uh, really quickly realized I wasn't like them when I once I started getting older. You know, I wasn't going to be one of these military test pilots. It just wasn't for me. And I kind of gave up on the dream. I didn't think it could happen. And then when the shuttle program came around, when I was in college, and when I was get out of college, actually, when I was a senior in college, the movie The Right Stuff came out, and I went and see that. saw that it was about the original seven astronauts. And that started to rekindle my dream of the wonder of space. And then, you know, I just thought it was cool again. But then I started finding out more about it. The shuttle program began in 1981 is when they first flew the shuttle. They selected the first group of shuttle astronauts in 1978. After I was done with college and got interested again because of this movie that I went and saw, I started reading about the astronauts and who they were. And I found out that they weren't all military test pilots. They were women and people of color and different ethnic backgrounds and civilians. And it wasn't just the military test pilots who were doing this any longer. And they were still a big part of it, of course, but military test pilots. But it was all types of people who were becoming astronauts, not too much different than who I was, I thought. And certainly, um, I never really thought I could actually do it, really. But I thought I could at least try. And it wasn't that crazy. And I needed to get some experience and to make myself even eligible to be considered. And even if I got the eligibility where I was qualified to be an astronaut, I met the minimum education and experience qualifications. And you still, you know, fighting uphill. It's, 
thousands and thousands of people that want to do this and just a handful that get selected. But I thought maybe, you know, maybe it could work out. And if not, maybe by trying to do that, I, I would lead me to something else in the space program and gave me the ambition to try to get more education and to do something that I really was passionate about, which was the space program. And I realized that that's really what I was interested in all along. I just thought I could never do it. And, and I thought, well, maybe I can't become an astronaut, but maybe I could still, I thought, do something in the space program for a career. I started taking steps toward that. And the big step I took after working for a couple of years for IBM after college, I left my job and went back to school. I went to graduate school at MIT. When I got my master's degree, that's when I started getting the credentials to be eligible to meet the, the minimum qualifications. And that's when I started applying. Now, at what point were you working at IBM? Because that was the safe choice. I mean, it's earlier in the book, you're working for IBM as a safe choice. And finally, someone that you worked with sits you down and says, what are you doing here, man? You got to get out of here, like save yourself. What would you say to someone working a job right now that they think is just suffocating and they, and they made the safe choice? I mean, do you recommend that people always go for it? Or do you think there's a place for playing it safe? No, nah, you got to go for it. I think you have to be honest with yourself about what you're really interested in. You know, and for me, it, it turned out that that wasn't the worst thing for me to do was take a couple of years after college in work, because if I would have went to grad school right away, I wasn't really into the space thing right out of college. I think that was part of the issue. I, getting a college education is a great thing. And I had a, had a good college education under my belt at that point. But Grad school, I felt anyway, was a, a little bit more specialized in that, you know, now you are, you have your basic education that you get as an undergrad, but now if you're going to go to grad school, I thought I needed a better idea of what it is I really wanted to do. And so what I did is I decided to put grad school on hold and work and think about it. So that was useful time, but it became evident that a couple of years of that was enough and it was time for me to get going. And I think I see this, you know, I see this in a lot of people with my close friends and family members too, that go through this, that they're unhappy with what they're doing. And sometimes you're unhappy, I think, in your job for different reasons. Sometimes you just feel like, you know, you don't like the people you work with, or you're just not a right fit for it, or you're not doing something that is meaningful to you, or you're not passionate about it. You know, in my case, I felt I had a great job and had good people to work with, and I could see myself doing that. But I just wanted more. I wanted to feel like what I was doing was really important to me. Not that it had to be important to everybody. But I didn't think what I was doing there was the thing that I was passionate about. And I thought it was a good job and a good way to earn a living. And you're part of a great team. When I was working before I went to grad school, it wasn't my passion. And I wanted to be part of the space program. And in order to be part of the space program, I had to make a change. And I was going to have to leave New York and go somewhere else to school. And it would be the best thing for me. And that's why I went to MIT. And I was able, lucky enough to get in there. But if I didn't get in there, I would have went somewhere else. But but I think that it's important to be honest with yourself. Yeah, you don't have to jump off a cliff if you're not doing what you want, but you do have to take steps in that direction. I think it's important to, to start taking steps and it'll open up opportunities for you. And and so uh, what I liked when I was an undergrad and, and what I started to read about and found, found interesting was this idea of, of human factors, of people controlling machines and how to design the interface whether it's a cockpit or you know a car console or a computer program or whatever, such that people can um, can interact with it effectively. And what I got really interested in was robotics of human-controlled manipulators and robots working in space. And when do you use the robot? When do you use the person? And what's the right combination of that? And I found that to be really interesting. And there was an advisor I had that I found out a professor that became my advisor, Tom Sheridan up at uh, MIT who had done a lot of research in this area for controlling uh, ro robots in space and in nuclear environments when they started handling nuclear material in the 1950s and 60s and also undersea so it's submersibles submersibles that would find the titanic and so on he he worked with that how do you control those vehicles how do people control those things and, and operate them and I found that to be really, really interesting. And that's what I was able to find a niche in, uh, in something that I could study in uh, graduate school that I found interesting that also had applicability to NASA and, and the space program. And you mentioned about, you know, having people who cared about me. There were all these, these mentors, these, uh, whether it was a teacher or a family friend or neighbor or whatever, coming in at the right time to help me out and give me a nudge. It was a guy named Jim McDonald, who I worked with after I was a junior in college. I worked with him at an engineering company on Long Island called Sperry. And this was my first big real engineering job where I had to wear a tie to work and so on. You know, I think he saw something in me. I just wasn't happy with doing what I was doing. And maybe, you know, the traditional engineering job at a big company 
might be okay for me, but I needed to be in the right area. And, and I wasn't really interested necessarily in just being an engineer. I wanted to do something that, that I thought had more meaning to it. And for me, what I was most interested in was I ended up being the space program. And and I kept in touch. I still see him. This guy, Jim McDonald, has been a mentor my whole life for me and a very good friend. He was a guy to try to shake me out of it when I was working after college saying, hey, you know, you might want to think about what you're doing. You need to move on with what you really love and take those steps before it gets too late. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned in the book as well, you only have one life, you have to spend it doing something that matters. And I think it sounds like that spurred you on quite a bit when you were sitting doing engineering internships, things that weren't really floating your boat. It seems like you wanted to live by that and thought, look, life's too short to waste sitting in front of this PC designing user interfaces, as useful as that might be, you wanted to be on the front lines. That time I wasn't even doing user interfaces. I was working as a systems engineer, putting systems together, which was fine. But it's more of me, I want to be involved with the space program. And I think that uh, the point is that you, the most important thing you can do with your life is what you do with your life and how you're going to spend that time. And you pay for that. It's, it's not money. Like When I was looking at going to grad school, there was this cost associated with it. You know, it was going to be a cost that I would have to stop working where I had a real job where I was making pretty good money right out of college. And so now going back to school, I was going to give that up. In addition to that, I was going to have to figure out a way to pay for school. And eventually I was lucky. I got NASA fellowships to help me pay. I was hardly making anything, right? I was making a little bit of money, was covering my tuition and I had a small stipend. So really was not making money in my twenties. That was where I spent my time in my twenties was predominantly spent in school where you're paying for the privilege as opposed to getting paid to do something. And I remember thinking about that, that I was going to be these years where my other friends were out there making money and, you know, doing that. But so there's a money cost with going back to school. But I think the cost for me of not doing that was higher because I was going to pay for it with my life and that I would not be able to pursue what I wanted to pursue in life unless I made that change, I felt. And, you know, I wasn't sure that this was exactly the right way to go. And there were other ways to try. But I thought at least going and getting at least a master's degree at a place like MIT was a good idea. And that was something I felt like I really should do and wanted to do. And and if I didn't do it, I'd always regret it. I think that's the way you need to look at things, not in dollars and cents, but in, in how you're going to spend your time on the planet. You know, how do I want to spend these next couple of years? Do I just want to be worried about making money or do I want to do something that I think is really important to me? And the opportunity to go and, and get a graduate education at MIT was extraordinary. To be there around those types of people, learning the things I learned, being totally involved in, in learning about technology and engineering and what was going on in the space program and be surrounded by people who felt the same way was just an extraordinary experience. And were you thinking about legacy at this time? In the book, you say, I don't want to tell my children how to live life. I want to show them. Were you thinking legacy or were you just thinking, all right, I need to do something important for myself? Or were you, did you have a wider perspective on this? Do you have a longer timeline in mind? Well, I think it's both. I think I wanted to be a happy person and a you know, happy parent eventually. And everyone wants their kids to be happy and to pursue their dreams and so on. And I think the best way to do that to have them do that is to show them how to do it. And that an extraordinary life, if that's what you want, is not impossible. It might be difficult to attain. I think that happiness in that part of your life, in your professional life, is attained by at least trying. And at least like you feel like you're doing something. There were a period of years when I was in graduate school and beyond when I was trying to become an astronaut. I guess it was 12 years from the time I thought that I wanted to try to pursue this. And after I got out of college in 1984 until the time I was picked in 1996. And those 12 years were pretty much filled with this journey of trying to get to NASA as an astronaut. There was a long time, 12 years, to be following, pursuing something. And it wasn't just the idea that, you know, if I don't make it, it's not worth it. I don't think that was it. I think it's more like, at least I'm trying. And it might not work out, but I want to try and I don't want to give up. And that's what I thought the important thing was. And if you're doing that, if, as long as I was doing that, giving it my best shot, or at least trying to give it my best shot, then I felt satisfied. And it may not work out for other reasons. You never know why it will or won't and it might not. But I certainly uh, was going to give it my best shot. And those years were interesting because even though I wasn't an astronaut, and I didn't think you know, truthfully that I would ever make it. At least I knew I was putting my best foot forward and trying it. Now, that, that's what we would want for our kids, but it's also important for us. I mean, I was, I was doing it for me because I really wanted to do it. 
and the thought of not trying was unthinkable. But at the same point, I, I wanted to, to set a good example in, in that regard, at least, you know, trying to pursue something that's important to you and there's no reason to, to settle. You hinted on this earlier as well, and I saw this in the book. You said, I've never achieved anything on my own. People have always pushed me to be the best version of myself. And I thought this was really interesting and important because, of course, you get everywhere with the team, but there's also this myth, especially in the United States or the West, I should say, in general, of this kind of self-made man, the guy who's just pulling it all together on his own, kind of John Wayne figure. And it seems like that was not the case for you. You had a team together to help with your PhD. I mean, there's you recollecting how your buddies are tearing apart your thesis almost for sport at this point in college. There's no benefit for them. They're just kind of enjoying watching you squirm here. And you realize that if you work hard and get help from good friends, you can do pretty much anything. It sounds like you had the opposite of a bootstrap, do-it-all-myself attitude. Yeah, I think that people learn or are successful in different ways. And they weren't torturing me just to see me squirm. They were helping me. I asked them to help me prepare for my doctoral exams. And, and I did it for other people, too. You grill each other and quiz each other because it's better to do that amongst friends and prepare for when the professors get at you. So they were, they were helping me. And they really did a good job in getting me ready. And I think that for me, what I found was is that um, I was more of a team guy, more of a team player where I enjoyed trying to bring out the best in other people and having them try to bring out the best in me. And the concept of team, even in a situation where you're trying to get a PhD, which is seen as an individual accomplishment, I didn't necessarily see it that way. I, I felt like there's a lot of support that was that I needed from my friends, from my lab mates and from my professors and from my advisor and so on to help me. And, and they were there to help me. And I try to be there to help other people. But I think that, you know, the sense of doing it all on your own, I, I think that that's outdated. I don't know when that ever existed, but you're going to need help. You need a team around you to be really successful. You know, life is a team game. You're not going to be successful on your own. And I don't, so I think when you have success, you need to think about it. All right. Yes. You know, I worked hard. I deserve what happened. Maybe I deserve that. But there's usually plenty of credit to go around and you need to be grateful for the help you got. So you're at MIT, it's the Smart Kid Olympics, the best of the best, and then you mentioned in the book, and then there was me, a regular guy from Long Island. It sounds like what we call imposter syndrome, which is essentially, I'm the guy that slipped through the cracks, what am I doing here? Is that something that you still feel that way sometimes? I mean, did you even have that up there? You're with this amazing all-star team. Did you still have second thoughts, like maybe I'm the the ringer here? Yeah, I, you know, I, when I was at MIT, you know, I felt like you know, I'm in over my head here. Look at all these smart guys. But I think a lot of them, you know, a lot of the men and women up there felt the same way. You know, like, what's going on here? Uh, I think I probably felt it more than most, though. I think I just did. I just get the sense that I did. In the astronaut program, too, I mean, I felt like, you know, it was strange. I mean, I, I, at times I felt like, you know, these guys are so tremendous. These men and women are so tremendous. What am I doing amongst them here? But at the same point, you know, I felt like I did have something to contribute and there were things that I could do well. And I just wanted to do well. I wanted to be a part of the team. I wanted to do the best I could. You know, I just worked really hard. But I always felt like, particularly I think at MIT, with the level of brain power they have up there, I, I wasn't your typical MIT student. I felt like, whatever that means, you know, I felt I really had to work hard to keep up. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling your own fire merch or promoting your productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. 
and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. And AJ, you don't have to just sell your stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from the brands that you love, giving your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no-excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Now, back to the show. What was your first thought when you saw the fueled rocket? I mean, you'd been to the rocket before you got in, of course. What were your thoughts when you saw this thing fueled up, ready to go, and you're walking in? I mean, there's gotta be some heavy-duty emotional stuff going on when you're about to actually get in and take off and leave Earth. Yes, what I write about in the book there is that uh, you get out to the launch pad and the rocket is fueled. Uh, I hadn't been around the fueled space shuttle before, and is uh you know burn off of the cryogenic fuel smoking it looks like smoke although it's vapor going into the air and it's making these ungodly noises and it, it looked like it was alive it looked like a beast like an actual beast alive and the thought that went to my mind was maybe this wasn't such a good idea <laughs> but it was too late by that point it was time to get on get on the spaceship and let's take our let's roll the dice on this one but it really is very intimidating and to get to space, to go from zero to 17,500 miles an hour in eight and a half minutes to get to orbit um, requires an extreme amount of power and a huge, powerful machine, the biggest, most powerful machines ever built. These beasts that take us away from the Earth, the power that is harnessed in there is really something that I, you know, we try to control it, but it is right on the edge of uncontrollability just in its utter power. It's amazing that people can build machines that can do that. It just really is. It's just incredible that we can build anything that powerful, but we do. Did you think about the safety factor or death when you're going up there, or are you just too focused on the game, too excited, this is the moment? I, I think I thought I thought about, you know, what might happen. I mean, safety, you do the best you can. You train to operate safely. Make sure you check everything and make sure you check the other guy and the other guy checks you and you're very open to making sure that you don't make uh, a fatal error and that everything is just the way it's supposed to be and you have all the people on the ground and you are trained on how to operate in such a way that would be safe so that if you do make a mistake or something is not quite right, that you or someone else will be able to catch it because you'll help them see what's going on and come to the conclusion if there is something wrong, that could be a safety problem. And so you want to be very vigilant about what's going on and help those around you be vigilant with you. And so we're trained to do that. And so the safety part of it, I knew we would try to do the best we could and we would be as safe as possible. 
But you also know that there's that uncontrollable factor with this is that because you're doing something that is so dangerous that even if you operate safely and everyone does their job, that just the nature of what you're doing can overcome that and it can be a bad day. So I certainly thought about you know, what the consequences were and what could happen and tried to be ready for it, I guess, if that was going to happen. But I thought about it more ahead of time and particularly in the weeks right prior before that, I thought more about it about what might happen. Not worried about it, but just trying to appreciate the life I had and that if something did happen, that whatever I left behind was in as best shape as it could be. And then uh, once you get out there, especially on the launch pad, it's different. Thinking about something is usually a lot worse than doing it. And I found if there was something I was scared about, or even up to this day, something I'm nervous about or something that worries me, thinking about it is always much, much worse than actually doing it. Is actually doing you taking action. Action is always better than inaction. And if you're worried about something that's going to happen in the future, like a space launch, I mean, you can try to prepare and study and do all that, but just the basic nervousness, worry about it, if something bad happening, there's really nothing you can do about that. But then when you get into it and you're going through the checklist, it's not as scary at that point. But thinking about it, it was always worse. Yeah, I can see that. I, I've watched the uh, clip from the Big Bang Theory where you're going up in space. I don't know if it's a Soyuz or something. There's a Russian guy, and there's Howard Wolowitz, and it's like, this is the moment. We're doing it. And, and Wolowitz goes, I actually have very mixed feelings. Yeah, they'd say, I love this, but that's ignition. I love this part. And the other guy goes, me too. The Russian guy goes, me too. And then Wolowitz says, I have uh, rather I have fairly mixed feelings. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, that's all the writers in the show. That's just us saying the line, but the writers come up with the lines for us. Of course, it is brilliant at some level because I was thinking, I don't know if I would say I love this part because, you know, at some point, I don't know what all those G's feel like and the fact that there's just massive amounts of explosions and fireballs underneath and we're about to hurtle off into space. I think I would just be extremely nervous. Then again, you've trained for this. You're excited. There's probably so much adrenaline going that I don't know what you're feeling at that point. I don't know if you can feel anything. It seems like the kind of thing that would just make you go numb. Are you a natural thrill seeker, though? Is that something that you've always had in your blood? No, I'm not. I'm not. So I wouldn't say something like I was acting when I said I love this part. I was acting uh, yeah, in the Big Bang Theory television show that I did where we launched. But no, I'm not a thrill seeker. Some of my friends were. I mean, especially my test pilot friends, they like doing some extreme stuff. But no, I never was an extreme sports thrill seeker kind of jumping out of airplane. Let's go hand gliding. Let's jump off the mountain and see what happens kind of guy. I was a little more conservative and not used to doing that sort of stuff. I think I was out of my comfort zone a lot as an astronaut, but there was sense in what we were doing in our training to build up the experience and the confidence we needed in case something did go wrong on the day that we could react appropriately. So yeah, for me, it wasn't, that wasn't really fun. It was a great experience. I'm talking about the real shuttle flight, not the space flight in the Big Bang Theory, but the real one, you know, for me, it was fairly, uh, exciting, uh, both in a fun and also in a kind of a nervousness sort of way as well. It's a lot of intensity and it's fairly stressful as well. You know, that was something I had to learn how to deal with. Yeah. I mean, you've said in the book, no matter how bad things are, you can always make them worse, which when I first heard it, I thought, what kind of attitude is that? And then I realized actually that's perfect because you realize that you can only focus on the things that you can control. What does that phrase mean for you in terms of training, in terms of your life? Because it's a little counterintuitive, like, oh my gosh, thanks for the vote of confidence, Massimino. I can always make it even worse than it is now. Thanks for the reminder. Yeah, I think it's important, and I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to remember. I think it's a good thing to remember is that we tend to, I think, make things worse than they really are. When something happens, whatever it might be, you break something, you try to fix something and you break it. You know, you're like, oh, well, that's a pain. You know, and now I've got to do something extra. What the tendency is that I find is that you make one mistake and then you're like, oh, geez, now I'm going to have to spend 10 minutes to fix that. I don't want to spend those 10 minutes. So let me rush through this and make that time up. And then by rushing, you break something else, which now you're not just going to be 10 minutes, but it's now it's another 15 on top of that, or whatever might happen. And you just make it worse and worse. And so generally the first mistake, however bad it might be, isn't game over. It might be, all right. It's very rare that one mistake ends the game. That was bad, but let me contain it. Let me not make it worse. We had this happen, but things can get worse. So, for example, in what I found when I was training and what I found in space was is that if you make a mistake, say you break something, which I did actually, 
you make a mistake and all of a sudden you've created this problem as bad as it might seem, it could get worse. Right now, you know, at some point, if you're working on something that's broken, maybe only part of what you're working on is broken, not the entire piece of equipment. And you could lose your tools. This is what I was thinking of during my spacewalks, that, yeah, I made a mistake, but I could really make this worse. If I made a mistake and all of a sudden I unhooked myself and I start floating off into space and they got to come get me, now I've made it a lot worse because I was nervous or not thinking because I made a mistake. Or if I made more mistakes and I lost tools, for example, losing a tool that's going to help me fix this problem. Now I've made it worse. All right. So I've made this mistake. I don't want to make it any worse. Let me try to contain it in where it is right now. It's not great, but it could always get worse. And I think that's what we forget. And when we rush and we try to make up for the mistake we made and we don't keep a cool head and we make it worse. And then we've got even a bigger problem to deal with. You're referring to repairing the Hubble telescope, I think, which, as you stated, is essentially brain surgery in space, and you, you end up with a strip screw, which a strip screw in space, at first I thought, oh, you stripped a screw, I hope this isn't going to be the whole story, and then I realized, well, you stripped a screw in space, you can't really dig your fingernail under there or grab a screwdriver from a toolbox and hammer the thing off. This is a, I don't know, $76 million or something, something telescope with a piece on it that you can't get another one unless you go down to North America and grab one, which is not an option. Tell us about that harness that almost foiled the entire mission, because that was kind of a brilliant little example of something that if it happened anywhere else in the world, so what? And the fact that it happens in space could have killed you and destroyed the mission and possibly the whole Hubble telescope. The harness floats off and you had to jump up and get it, but that's fine if you're in Albuquerque and you gotta jump up and grab something. It's not fine when you jumping could actually catapult you into the abyss of nothingness. It was interesting what happened was that was on uh, my first spacewalk of my second mission for me. It was a cable, a harness, we call it. It was a, a cable that needed to be hooked up to deliver power to this instrument that had a power supply that had failed, but we had a workaround where we were going to hook this power harness to it and put it to another supply and so on. And this cable, I was going to have good access to it. Even was going to be the big repair was going to happen the day after by the other team, the other team of spacewalkers. But the uh, spacewalk that Mike Good, Bueno, and I were doing that day gave us good access to hook up this cable for these guys, better than they were going to have tomorrow when we rotated the telescope in a different direction. My job was to help them out, do a get-ahead for them for the next day and hook this thing up. And it was a cable that I almost always put two hooks on everything that I used, just in case one hook came undone, the item wouldn't float away on me. But this one was different because I only had one hook available. I was going to put it on that and then go straight into the telescope and install it. But what happened is as I was getting this harness, we were having trouble with the gyroscopes we were installing. And I was told to go to the back of the space shuttle and grab a new gyroscope, a backup gyroscope that we weren't planning to use. And therefore, it was kind of tucked away in the back and bring it around to the front of the telescope where we were working. So I had this cable on me just with this one hook, you know, kind of flopping off the side of me as I went all the way to the back to get this gyroscope. And then it came all the way to the front and handed it off. And somewhere I must have done something to bump that one hook. And I put my waist tether in at a handrail on the telescope. And as I'm just kind of getting myself set, I see this harness, this cable float past my head and up away from me very slowly. And it was about to launch itself away from us. And it's interesting when I went through my mind very quickly at that moment was we only have one of those. I knew we only had one. So I knew if we lost it, my friends would not be able to repair the instrument the next day. What they did wasn't going to work without this cable. So I knew that's the only one we have. The next thing I knew was that there were Star Trek recovers, which were very, very delicate, were right above my head. And this thing was floating right past those. So if I leapt for it, if I left for this thing, I could hit those star trackers. But I also knew through my habits that I had a waist tether around the handrail at the front of the telescope. And a waist tether meant that I could, I had a leash. And that if I went and grabbed this thing, if I let go to grab it, that my leash would prevent me from hitting those star trackers and would prevent me from launching myself into space. So I knew I would probably be okay. And then so I felt, you know, this split second, I made this decision. I was going to take that chance and try to grab this thing because I thought it would be okay. And sure enough, that was the case. I kind of pushed myself up a little bit. I grabbed this thing, and then I had to tug from my waist tether to pull me back down to where I was, and it, it worked out fine. 
if I did not know all those things, I, I could have created a, a much worse of a problem by launching myself into space or smashing into the star trackers of when I go to try to get this cable, but it worked out and no one really noticed. There's relief that you didn't kill yourself, but there's probably also got to be some relief like, I think I got away with that and nobody has to know unless I choose to tell them about this, right? Well, what's funny is that when we're working on the Hubble, we're right in the payload bay and the guys inside, you take turns when you go out and spacewalk the two teams, but the team inside is looking outside, reading you the checklist and looking over your shoulder and they see everything that's going on. So John Grunsfeld, my buddy's inside and, and I think he said, Master, you know, before he could really get the words out, I heard him start. You know, watch your head or watch your You know, it was over. It was over that quick. And no one said anything, you know, and I have a helmet camera on and I know that everyone on the ground is watching, but no one said anything. We just kept going. After we got back and we were home for about a week or so, we had a debrief, a spacewalking debrief. And we went through that and no one said anything to me, you know, about it at all. No one said, I almost forgot about it. And then Tomas Gonzalez Torres, who was our lead uh, flight controller for spacewalking, the EVA flight controller, the guy that had helped train us along with this uh, this young lady, uh, Christy Hansen. The two of them worked as a team. But Tomas was the senior guy, and he was leading the debrief and asked all the questions. And, were, and he was looking at he was in the front room of the control center during those spacewalks and very intimately involved. Got to know him very well, good friends with him. He pulls me aside after we're walking out of the debrief. We're actually outside the building, and he comes over and goes, Mass, i got to ask you something. And the name of this harness was the Pi harness. It was a PIE was the acronym. I think it's for Power Interface Extension and Harness. I don't know, something like this. We call it the Pi. And he comes up to me and he, like, you know, very quietly goes, What happened with the Pi? He's like, oh, What do you mean? He goes, I, was like, I just saw the thing float by your head. You went up and grabbed. What the hell happened? What was that? He didn't want to ask to embarrass me or whatever. He noticed it, but we just kept going. So he did notice, but I think he's one of the few people that noticed what happened. And it could have been a real problem. The thing would have floated away. It would have been a real problem, but I just snatched it before anyone could really notice except for Tomas. It's funny because when we think about space, you know, we all watch all these movies and we think, okay, if you accidentally launch yourself away, you're probably tied to a bunch of different things. Or if we really watch a lot of sci-fi, we just figure, oh, there's a way they can maneuver and then grab him. But not really, right? I mean, if you float in a direction you're not supposed to float, that's it. Yeah, well, you always have a safety tether on. So the safety tether is 85 feet. So if you get that far away, 85 feet is a long way to be, you know, and we've had some astronauts, we'll get to see a blooper reel, like don't let this happen to you, which some astronauts have launched themselves doing a tool chase, and they never get the tool. Once the thing gets away from you, it's gone. You're not going to be able to control yourself that accurately to get it. All you're going to do is launch yourself somewhere and create another problem, and then you know try to reel yourself back in like a fish. It happened a few times, not all the time, very rarely, but still enough times that there's a blooper reel that you can see these things, where these astronauts have made these mistakes. What I think the really the bigger danger for me there is if I would have damaged the telescope because I was in a very delicate area of the telescope. And by launching myself, I could have hit it. But I tell you, when I saw that power harness floating away from me, I saw more than just the harness. I saw the future of astronomy floating away. And I wasn't going to let that happen. Pretty, you know, It was a little bit risky, but I, I figured it was worth the risk. Yeah, at some point you're thinking, I'm going to look pretty bad if we go back. And the debrief is, so what happened was we were really close. Everybody got up there fine. And then... Mass let the pie harness go, don't know what he was thinking, and then we couldn't repair it. That's right, right. I'd be to blame. It, yeah, my name would be on all the astronomy books for the reason why we don't know the age of the universe. Right, exactly. Due to Mike Massimino's gross negligence, we have no idea what this galaxy looks like. Is that blooper reel available anywhere in the public domain? Because that sounds... No, that is certainly classified. Ah, bummer. I was <laughs> I so hoping... Yeah, I don't know uh, where you'd get a copy of that. Yeah, probably not on VHS. You'd have to dig through the archives, and it's probably not worth the effort. It's more of a training tool than it is. It's not like a blooper reel on you know, America's favorite videos. You probably find it very boring, actually. But for astronauts, it's pretty cool. Thanks for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. For a list of all the amazing sponsors and discount codes, visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. Now, back to the show. Producer Jason was asking if there's a simulator at NASA to try and replicate the launch or if every time you launch, it's the first time you felt that stuff. Because you simulate pretty much everything, but it seems like the launch would have to be broken down into parts. Like maybe you can simulate the gravity, but not all the controls. 
Is there something that's just like the inside of that shuttle and tries to simulate the feeling that you're going to get? There is, but you're right. I mean, the way you do do it in pieces, but there's no way to get the power of the launch. You just can't do it. So what we do is we have a emotion-based simulator where we practice launches, and, and it can get you back. You know, you tilt back and you move, and they have hydraulics moving you around and shaking you, but they cannot replicate that violence on the ground. It's just impossible. And then for the G-forces, we do a simulator ride. We do a, a centrifuge ride. There's a centrifuge at Brooks Air Force Base in San Antonio that we ride that centrifuge and we go up, we get the G profile for eight and a half minutes. Really what it is with the Gs is that the major part of that is the last two and a half minutes of the launch from six to eight and a half minutes, that two and a half minutes, you get about three Gs on your body. You know, they spin you around to give you the idea of the Gs building up and then you get to those sustained three Gs so you can feel what they're like on your body. We get more Gs, not the most Gs I've ever taken it. In our airplane, T-38s that we fly, we get up to six or seven Gs, but those are only for like a split second, a second or two, a couple seconds, you might get that amount of G-force. Here, for two and a half minutes, it's kind of long for that amount. Even though three Gs is not that much, it's three times your body weight pushing down on you. So it's like you're on your back and you've got a pile of bricks on your chest is what the feeling is. Jason, with all the other things to worry about and think about at that time, you've got two of you sitting on you like a schoolyard bully, basically, at that point, right? Yeah, but that's not so bad, actually. It's just, all right, okay, you know, we'll just wait until this is over. So, yeah, there's really not much for you to do except kind of take it. Yeah, I guess you're thinking, all right, this is a little uncomfortable. Guess I'll wait until I'm weightless witnessing the miracles. Of right, it's not the worst thing, but, you know, you're like, okay, well, you're happy when it's over. Yeah, sure. You're up there repairing the telescope or doing any kind of spacewalk, which, by the way, you've got over 30 hours of spacewalking. So think about just being out in the, the vastness of space, looking at the Earth, hanging out with multi, multi, super expensive, multi-million dollar equipment that's super delicate, fragile and you're thinking about the consequences of a tear in the suit at one point in the book, how do you even decide what to worry about when pretty much everything up there is lethal? Yeah, I think it's, you don't want to worry about anything. You want to have confidence in your suit and just go about your work, but you also want to be very careful. You just want to operate very safely. You don't want to cowboy anything or be cavalier about the way you're, you're moving around or doing things because that leads to trouble. You just you turn into this sort of, mode of operating where you try to be very professional, very precise. Everything you say that comes out of your mouth, you want to be very, very precise about what you're doing, what you're reporting, what you're asking. Every time you, you move, you're moving with a purpose. You always know where your tethers are. You're not going to lose anything. You're not going to lose yourself. You know exactly where your safety tether is. You know where everything is, where every piece of equipment, everything that's on you. You have this total consciousness of what you're doing. And in that way, you know, you're operating in a very efficient way that'll give you the best chance of being successful, but also in a very safe way to give you the best chance of coming back inside. And you have to trust the equipment that it's going to work. When you get into your spacesuit and you seal yourself in there, you get help from your friends and, you know, your buddies are checking everything and you got people on the ground watching and making sure everything's going okay as best they can. And, and that's what you're doing. You try to operate very safely, but still, even with that, I, at the end of my second spacewalk, I found out there was a slight tear in my glove. And if it was something that we had noticed at the beginning of the spacewalk or anywhere before then, it would have probably created us to terminate the, the spacewalk. Oh, man. But because it happened toward the end and we were coming in anyway, there was really not much we could do about it. But luckily, it didn't affect anything that day except make me realize that I got a little bit closer to the edge than I wanted to on that one. Yeah, no kidding. I'm The suit, it seems like... If you accidentally made a little tear in it, what are these things made out of that that can kind of accidentally happen? It sounds like there's a lot that can actually go wrong with the suit. And I assume you can't just throw some duct tape on it and go out there anyway. No, the thing you want to prevent from being compromised is the inner bladder of the suit. Because the suit has seven layers to it, including a layer of Kevlar. The part that is more vulnerable is the gloves, because the gloves don't have that layer of Kevlar in them. Because you know, then it can't be too stiff, right. and it, the Kevlar just protects mainly from an impact, and so it's in other parts of the suit. But the glove gets a lot of wear and tear, and so the material on the outside, which is pretty tough, can get worn down over time. And if a little cut develops, it could cut the outer layer. Now I still had a lot of layers inside protecting me, and I still had the bladder on the inside. But as you start wearing through those layers you start exposing the more critical layer. So the outer layers, you can take a cut in and survive, but what you've done is you start exposing the inner layer. And it's the pressure bladder. It's like a rubbery pressure bladder. 
inside that keeps your pressure, keeps your air, the atmosphere inside of your suit intact. You can take a hit or a cut or a scratch in the material on the outside as long as it protects the pressure bladder. But what we were concerned in my case is that we had gone through the outer layers and that we were going to get closer to that pressure bladder. And that's why it would have been a situation where you'd have to stop if it had been discovered earlier. Got it. And so right before you're about to leave the shuttle and go on a spacewalk, are you kind of nervous at this point or are you thinking, hell, man, I'm already in space. Like, we're already here. Let's just do this. To me, it was a huge difference going outside because you're in a spaceship and it's kind of like you're in a room, sort of. You're in this room, you know, inside of your cabin, you know, on the ground and then you're in space. But you're in space, but you're still inside the cabin. You've gone far away in the cabin, but you're still inside. It's like being in an airplane. No, you're still inside the airplane as you're flying around. And when you're looking uh, through the window of the spaceship, it's kind of like looking at the looking at the fish in an aquarium and looking through a window. But when you, when you go outside, out in space, now all of a sudden I really felt like I was outside. I was in space. And it wasn't looking inside of this room and through a window anymore. I was looking anywhere I wanted, and there's really nothing around you. I mean, even when you're outside on Earth, you have the sky. You know, you see the stars, you know, you have the sky above you or clouds or but when you're out in space, there's nothing there, just stars. You know, it's just openness. This idea, I really felt like I was outside. I really felt like a spaceman it was a much different feeling than being inside of the cabin. A much more beautiful view as well. And you can look anywhere you want and you could really experience the brightness of the sun and the darkness of the when you're not in the sun. And you can feel the temperature changes and you can look out and see things without being constrained by a window and look at the stars. And then turn your head and look at the Earth. And the altitude we were at at Hubble is 100 miles higher than station where the space station flies. It was at the ceiling of where the shuttle could fly. You could see the curve of the planet. You can see the, the roundness of it, which is extraordinary. How clear are the stars without the atmosphere? That must have just been a total game changer. I mean, I, you're already looking at pictures of space. You're looking at the stars a lot, I would imagine, as a kid. And then you're up there. There's nothing between you and those things. Yeah, they're perfect points of light. So the reason stars twinkle on the ground is because the light comes through the atmosphere and gets a bit distorted and they twinkle. But there's no twinkling. They're perfect points of light when you get above the atmosphere and you see them directly. You're not any closer to them, but they're just a lot clearer. You can see different colors in the stars and they don't twinkle. They're just these perfect points of light everywhere. What about space sickness? I wondered, you're in a boat, you're going back and forth, you get a little seasick. Is there space sickness or is that not a concern? No, it's space sickness for sure. I threw up my first day in space. I was over it by my second day. and my second flight, I wasn't affected at all. But my very first day in space, I was motion sick. I was kind of okay. I got everything done. But at the end of that day, right before bed, I tried to drink some water and it came right back up. And I wasn't feeling well. I was happy to go to bed that night and get a good night's rest and wake up the next morning feeling much better. But it's a conflict of your sensory inputs. Your vestibular system is on Earth. When you're moving around in a boat or a car and you get motion sick, it's because it might be elicited, particularly if you're looking at a, if you're trying to read something and your eyes are telling you you're perfectly still and your inner ear is being accelerated, bounced up and down in a car or a boat or whatever. And that's what leads to seasickness, motion sickness. In space, your, your vestibular system, which works on gravity, is not moving at all. It's telling you perfectly still, but yet you're moving around. Your eyes can say you're moving, and that leads to the same sort of effect. And what happens is the brain gets smart about this and eventually will stop listening to the vestibular system because it's not working any longer, and then you're fine, and then you don't get sick anymore. That's amazing how the human body can adapt to space just within a few days. I mean, that's so impressive. Yeah, it's, the brain is an amazing thing. And the whole system, our body is able to do some amazing things in getting ready. So you're repairing the Hubble, saving humanity, the future of humanity, right? The special forces of NASA over here, 650 grand an hour is a mission cost, but you still gotta be doing some horsing around up there. What was the most fun you had? And I'm not talking about the PC answer, like it was really rewarding saving the Hubble program. What's the fun stuff that you guys are doing up there, especially when the missions are over and you're just decompressing? Looking out the window, listening to music, and just taking in that extraordinary view was something I could do forever. For me, that was the best way to decompress and just to enjoy the time up there and enjoy that view. It's magnificent. Are you able to stay clean up there physically, or is it just kind of like wipe your armpits with a wet nap and wait till you get back to Earth? No, it's pretty good. It's just like taking a sponge bath. You have uh, you know liquid soap that you use and waterless shampoo, and you know you don't really have running water for a shower, but you're able to 
take a sponge bath and stay fairly clean. You're ready for a shower when you get back for sure. Yeah, I bet. There's certainly a lack of water. I mean, that stuff is heavy and you're bringing plenty of it in your body. As you said in the book, today's coffee is tomorrow's coffee, right? So, Yeah, that's the way it is on the space station. It's recycled. On the shuttle, we had fuel cells that generated water as a byproduct of the power that they generated. But on the space station, yeah, they recycle uh, all the water. So yeah, today's coffee is tomorrow's coffee. What does it feel like to readjust to Earth after you land? I mean, what did you do first, and what did you miss most in space besides, of course, your family? Yeah, I miss, of course, as you said, my family and friends, and I miss things like uh, just going to a baseball game. I was looking forward to that. Baseball season was starting. Both of my flights I flew in the spring and was looking forward to that. A pizza, looking forward to just grabbing a pizza and just watching TV and vegging out. And people, just being around a lot of people, just being around normal, sort of normal stuff. I think that when we landed, a few days after I landed, my son was a swimmer and he was on our local neighborhood swim team. And the swim meets were on Saturdays and all the parents would be there and sitting in their lawn chairs under, you know, under these kind of tent-like structures and getting the kids ready. And it was always a crowd of people, you know, just a lot of kids and a lot of parents and coaches and, you know, all this activity with the swim meet, just lots of people. And I really enjoyed those things. And that's what I miss. Being around a lot of people at a big family or community event for me was something I look forward to those swim meets, look forward to going to baseball games and eating pizza, using a real toilet and sleeping in a normal bed. Yeah, I can imagine sleeping in a bed that you won't float off of or away from, probably, and taking a nice little shower as well. What was the strangest thing about readjusting back to Earth? You mentioned at one point you dropped a bag of groceries because you just let it go in midair thinking it would stay there. Yeah, you kind of forget where you're. you get used to it, you know, in space just floating stuff. And then you get back to Earth and that doesn't work as well. It doesn't work at all. And yeah, so I had that experience where I was taking a bag of groceries out of the car and didn't know where to put them. So I just reached back and put it up high and then let go like it was going to float right there. And of course, it just crashed to the ground. But yeah, you're like, dang, gravity is terrible. I think also it's you're so focused on the mission and you focused on the mission and training and getting ready for it and then and executing it and being up there. And, and then all of a sudden it's over. You know, this thing you've been thinking about for years is now over and it's time to figure out, you know, what to do next. <laughs> so in some ways, you know, it's fun stuff, you know, spend time with your family and do that. But it's life on earth is a lot tougher than life in space, I think, because you, you have more decisions to make and you have more options and you, you have to deal with a lot more than you do in space. In space, it seems to be more regimented and it's spectacular and it's fun and new and different and then you get back to earth and you gotta mow the lawn and fix the car and it's a lot tougher it's not as much fun how did being in space change you what sort of lasting after effects do you have from being up there i think for me one is that dreams do come true it's something i dreamt about as a little kid something i thought would never happen and even as i'm talking to you now i can't believe that i actually got a chance to do it so the dreams really do come true it is possible to have an extraordinary life and the other thing is just the beauty of the Earth. I describe it in the book in a few different passages, but the one where, as I view the planet, you know, from the spacewalk, especially, you can see the roundness of the planet, and you can look and turn your head and see the stars, and just the beauty of it. I, in one moment, when I, I paused and I thought, "Oh, this must be the view from heaven." If you could look down from heaven, this is what you would see. I just dwelled on that for a moment, and then I said to myself, "No, no, that that's not right. It's not just more beautiful than that. This is what heaven must look like." I believe we live in a paradise. I believe we're very, very lucky to be here. We need to take care of it. But I think we're very, very fortunate to live here. I can only imagine what heaven would look like, but I can't imagine anything being more beautiful than our planet. And I do think we live in a paradise, and we should really treasure every moment that we get to be on this planet. Beautifully said, and it's amazing. You've done so much for the future of space exploration, just the Hubble repair in itself, which was, uh, by the way, if you're thinking about grabbing this book, definitely do, even if not just for the very end where you're performing this space brain surgery on the Hubble, and the answer to the problem was rip the handle off using pure brute strength. Really funny stuff and really, really great book. What do you think of SpaceX, Virgin Galactic, and companies like that privatizing space travel? I think it's our future. We've been waiting, I, I think, ever since the government got involved with sending people back in space back in the early 1960s. And in the Apollo program, you know, there's always been this talk of when is it going to open up? You know, when it, it's like aircraft, when airplanes were first designed, it was just a few of them and military applications and the government used them as military tools. And for other reasons, uh, they developed them. The government primarily did. And now we have this thriving 
commercial airline industry where every second we have a plane taking off going somewhere. It's going to be a long time until we have a spaceship every second taking off, but I think we're finally at the point now and where we can have people flying in space as a profitable business. You know, space has been profitable with launch systems and satellites and communications and all the things that we have with satellites. But now it looks like space travel for people, which is ultimately what I think most people are interested in and is getting a chance to go, is now I think going to become more and more possible. And it's only because of the efforts of the private sector, um, like SpaceX, Virgin Galactic, Blue Origin is another one, Jeff Bezos' company. And they are making incredible strides and they are doing some great things. You know, Blue Origin is making rocket motors that NASA is going to be buying. They're just, just great companies, I think, and, and these visionary entrepreneurial leaders are also space nuts, thank goodness, and they are willing to take the risk and put in that initial capital that you need to get this thing going, take that risk to see if we can open up space to the masses, and I think it's going to happen. Besides just sending tourists up for some fun, I think what's going to happen is because they'll be developing these things, these systems, these rocket ships, propulsion systems, I think that's how we're going to get to Mars. I don't think it's going to be a government program or even governments together uh, going to Mars. I think it's going to be that. I think it will be that. I think it's also going to be these private companies that are going to help us get there, too. I think it's going to be truly a, a great effort between different countries and, and these private companies to get us to Mars. So I think it's great. It's exciting. It's opened up opportunities for people interested in working in the space program. Back you know, when I was a kid, it was basically NASA, one of the really big companies that NASA contracted directly. And now it's still that, but it's also these private companies. And some of my smartest students I teach at Columbia, some of my best students, some of the smartest kids in our country are going to work, who are interested in the space program, or working for SpaceX and Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin and these other companies. So I think it's a great opportunity for those. Uh, they can be entrepreneurial and they can explore space and they can do some really exciting things. But I think we're opening up a whole new golden age, and I think it's here. I think it might be maybe just a couple of years away and maybe a little bit a year or two longer than what we had expected, but that's nothing compared to the lasting effect it will have over the decades to come. Would you go to Mars if given the opportunity? Yeah, I'm not going to be given the opportunity, but if I was given the opportunity, I would go, yes. Right. I, I figured, are you just saying that because you know you're not going to get the opportunity? So you're like, yeah, why not? No, if I really had a chance to go on a mission to Mars, I'd go, but I'm getting too old, man. I think it's going to be a great mission when it happens, but I think you're going to want to come back. I think you know, there's no credibility to these one in particular that is saying it's a one-way trip and uh, you know, people are applying to go. It's preposterous. Yeah, I think we are going to go, but it's going to be a return trip and it's going to be done the right way. And, and when that happens, it's probably going to be years from now, but maybe not too far along. You know, we'll see. Elon Musk has some real interest in making it happen soon. So you know, hopefully it'll happen before too much longer. But no, absolutely. If, seriously, if I had the opportunity to go there, I would. You hear that, Elon? Bring Mass with you. Sign me up, man. Well, thanks for being a hero, Mass. We are really honored to speak with you today. Really appreciate it. Well, it's honors mine. I really appreciate your interest, and thanks for sticking with me for so long, and uh, appreciate you uh, reading the book, and I uh, hope uh, whoever does read it enjoys it, and appreciate the conversation. Thanks. Man, that guy's really cool. He's been on the Big Bang Theory six times. He's done 30-plus hours of spacewalking, 550-plus hours of just space time in general. I mean, this is, this is an incredible person. And, you know, it's funny because I was going to ask him. He's a pretty tall guy. I was going to ask him to do the math on his size and, and calculate the cost of sending him to space versus somebody else who's average size and see if he could justify his performance in light of that extra cost. But I'll tell you, his height made him perfect for spacewalking. I learned that from the book. You have to be big for a spacewalk because you get more leverage. And, you know, it's just unfair, Jason. Size matters even in the infinite vastness of space. It is unfair. <laughs> It is unfair, right? I, I highly recommend the book as well, especially the audio version, because he reads it himself, and the passion just really, really comes through. I just, I loved it. And if you enjoy this, don't forget to thank Mass on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes, as well as his book and some other resources mentioned on the show. The same Twitter that he tweeted from, from space. And remember, you can tap our album art in most mobile podcast players to see the show notes for this episode. We'll link to the show notes right on your phone. I'm also on Twitter, at The Art of Charm. I post a lot of articles and 
insights there. You can engage with me there and engage with the show. Our boot camps, our live programs here in LA, remember, we sell out a few months in advance, so if you're thinking about it a little bit, you should get in touch ASAP, get some info from us so you can plan ahead, bootcamp.theartofcharm.com. And don't forget about the AOC Challenge, theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or here in the States, you can text CHARMED, C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444. This challenge is all about improving your networking, your connection skills, and inspiring those around you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. We'll also email you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show. I'm also doing regular videos with drills and exercises to help you move forward every single week. It'll make you a better networker, a better connector, and a better thinker. That's theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text charmed in the U.S. to 33444. For the full show notes for this and all previous episodes of the show, head on over to theartofcharm.com slash podcast. This episode of The Art of Charm was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead, tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web from space. So stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at theartofcharmpodcast.com.